Morning. My name is Korsha Molesky. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Hope. And yeah, that's uh, feel a little damp still from running over from Hope West. Um, little little wet out there. Thanks for uh, coming out to, to Hope and to worshiping with us. I want to introduce you to. Uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Steve uh, Wachter. He's my father-in-law, and this is a, a picture of him with my two boys. That was, uh, it's a little bit dated, but that's just a little bit of a window into his personality. He got a degree from the University of Minnesota in horticulture and would become the lead horticulturist at the Minnesota Zoo. And in his retirement, still gets a lot of joy in sharing this with others, he was invited into my wife Jill's classroom, and, and this is, just imagine what you might bring. This is what he chose to bring for these four-year-olds, and if you zoom in, you can see a couple things. Look at, look at all the tags. Like, look how well-organized he has each of these plants. Are any of those succulents? I don't know. Um, <laughs> See a cactus, maybe? Uh, and then, this whole, on the right side there, he has all of these plantings so the kids can come and, like, harvest. Like, they can come and pull out, was it carrots? And, like, who does that, right? But then look at, look at his face. Look at his excitement. Like, he's, he's waiting for a four-year-old to finish their questions so that he can share his extensive knowledge with these young, impressionable minds. He just loves flowers and plants. And, and, and this spring, because he's experienced so many springs with me, uh, who does not garden, he just one day came over and did like our front yard gardens. Just, we left and there were no pretty flowers. And then we came back and it was just colorful, beautiful flowers that I will kill in the next few weeks, you know. Uh, this is, this is if I, if I uh, remember correctly, this is my wife's most liked picture on Facebook of, of uh, just happens to be of her dad with our boys again. And this is him on his retirement. It says, Drew and Isaac, sorry you have to go to school today. And with all those tests, grandpa's retired, no more work for me. And so on his retirement, this is what he chose to do with the first morning off, is I'm gonna get up early, I'm gonna pack my truck full of a chair, an ottoman, I got an end table, I got a coffee cup, banana bread, I got the radio, and then comics, which actually is hiding a magazine that he actually wants to read, but he just has to give this impression that I'm reading comics all day. And that's what he wanted to do. That's, that's a window into my father-in-law. And, and I'm telling you, I married Jill, which I hit the jackpot there. Little did I know what kind of in-laws I would marry into. And the fact is, I have a great relationship with my father-in-law. Now, I share this for, for a reason, and that's really because... God has used uh, my father-in-law in unexpected ways, just as a source of blessing, of, of friendship, of doing work projects together, house projects together. And e even if you don't have a, a father-in-law, even if you're not a son-in-law, uh, the, the point, the reason I bring up 
my relationship with Steve is because God uses unexpected people in our lives to showcase uh, that he is Lord. And that's what we're gonna see really in today's uh, word from, from the book of Exodus. And as, as, even as I share that about my life, I ask you just to consider who are the people in your life, the unexpected people that God has used in your life. I had a guy share the gospel with me after returning from Turkey. Like, like who would expect that, right? That, that somebody would travel halfway around the world to share God's word, God's truth with me. And I ask you to consider that. Who are some of the unexpected people that God has used in your life to showcase some of who he is? If you're new, if you're just checking in, if you're just stopping by as part of summer, I've, I've roughly divided up the, the book of Exodus into three chunks. We started in slavery in Egypt. The Israelite people are enslaved. Then we moved on to the middle section, which is they are delivered up out of slavery. They leave Pharaoh. They leave Egypt. And then kind of the third part, which we're, we're slowly approaching, is them at Mount Sinai, where God delivers the Ten Commandments and a bunch of laws to them. And where we are is kind of right on the border of the second and third section, where they have approached and, and are, are close proximity to Mount Sinai, but are not quite there. And so commentators disagree whether this is the end of section two, start of section uh, three, doesn't really matter for our sake, but just realize that's kind of where we're at in the storyline. And today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 18. And I'm not going to read through it once and then go back through it just because it's such a long section of text. Let me just summarize. The two kind of main characters in the story for today are actually a father-in-law, son-in-law. That There is Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, and there's Moses, who is the son-in-law. And God uses them in ways of mutual benefit to showcase that he is Lord of all. And it's a compelling narrative. And it actually, because it's at this place in the story, a lot of commentators ask the question like, why is this in our Bible? Why is this here, this conversation between father-in-law and son-in-law? And, and I hope that by the end of our time it, that, that becomes clear. But the two of them have, I think, mutual benefit in both at the end of this, I think, showcase that, that God is Lord over all, which is really the theme of the entire book of Exodus. So that's a little glimpse into where we're going for today. Let me start off here in verse one of chapter 18. It says, now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people, Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other named Elizer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. So we open up the story, Jethro the priest of Midian, which you gotta go all the way back to the start of Exodus to have Jethro's name be seen. And what's noteworthy here is that he's described as a priest of Midian. If you go back to last week, we talked about the Malachites. The Amalekites and the Midianites both were non-Israelites. They're not a part of God's nation, God's people. And yet, in our story, this is going to be the last time he's described as a priest of Midian, of Midian. Another way of reading that is priest of a different tribe, of a different clan, an outsider, a non-Israelite, okay? So he is a priest of a different tribe with different beliefs. And yet he is also the father-in-law of Moses, and he heard of everything that's been happening. 
As you might imagine, this idea of a powerful Pharaoh being brought to his knees is going to become front page news. But not only that, because Moses is away, and at some point, Jethro has brought into his house his daughter and his grandsons, likely they were seeking out news. Travelers that are coming back and forth, perhaps between Egypt and Midian, they would be saying, have you heard of anything? Have you heard of the Israelites? Have you heard of Moses? Has anything been happening? And they're hearing news of what God is doing. And so here we see that Moses at some point had sent away his wife. We don't know exactly when. Commentators, oh, they just love this kind of stuff where it's not clear from the text. And they just love speculating about when Moses sent his wife away. We don't know. We don't know if it was like God said, hey, send your wife and kids away. We don't know if all of a sudden, kind of in the midst of the plagues, Moses said, wow, stuff is really going down here. I'm worried about something that happens to me could impact my family. So did he send them away? Did they go through all the plagues, all the miracles, all the deliverance, and then have, we don't know. But at some point, Moses sent his family away. And we see this, the, the revelation of his two sons. And specifically what's important in the Bible is when people get named, it, it, it has importance. In this case, not just for Moses and not just for his story, but truly for all of Israel. It could be said of them, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land, right? In Egypt, they were foreigners. And yet also, as, uh, as spoken of Eliza here, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. That's not just Moses' story. That's the entire people. Continuing on in our story, it says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Again, we're not quite there. We're gonna get to the third part of our story. We're gonna get to Mount Sinai. Not quite there. Jethro had sent word to him. I, your father-in-law, Jethro, I'm coming to you with your wife and her two sons. And interestingly enough, they kind of fade into the background. And, and Moses went out to meet not just his wife and kids, though I'm sure that happened. I, I presume that happened. But to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. It's not how I tend to greet my father-in-law, um, but that's kind of a historic way of greeting uh, one another. Let's keep going. It says, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Let's pause there for a moment. So Moses, an Israelite, shares with Jethro, a Midianite, okay, different tribe, different beliefs, worships different gods, recounts all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians on behalf of Moses and the Israelites. But he doesn't just share the acts of deliverance. And I think this is important for us to see. He also shares of the hardships, which have been countless, right? Innumerable hardships for Moses personally and for the Israelites. When we think of the times when they didn't have food and water and the hardship and the hunger. And you just imagine a parent's love for their child and it's the first day of not having food or water. Or it's the second day of not having food and water. 
And child is looking up to parent of like, haven't eaten, have, you know, not, not just for the last 24 hours, but 48 hours, 72 hours, you know. I got hungry teenagers that let me know about an hour and a half later, still hungry, want some food, right? So imagine the hardship and the struggle that they would have faced in those times. But then he ends with, and how the Lord had saved them. How the Lord had met their every need. And I think this is important for us to recognize that we have hardship. And sometimes we don't share that. We just do the happy, happy, joy, joy. If I let this non-believer hear about how my life is hard, how that might view their relationship to God, it's like, Share the stuff. You have stuff. Share it. And yet it doesn't mean, and we don't have to discount our trust in God, that God will meet our every need. Let's go. Keep going here. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued um, the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. So this is, this is shocking. Why? Because we just got done reading last week about the response of the Malachites. Different tribe, different beliefs, worship different gods, and they respond to the Israelites with war. So when we turn the page to verse 9 here, Jethro was Delighted. Not only delighted, but said, praise be to the Lord. Not only praise be to the Lord, but he says in verse 11, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods. That's a crazy declaration from a guy who in verse one was described as a priest of Midian. A non-believer, an outsider, now saying, your God, your Lord is Lord of all. This is something that wasn't uttered by the Egyptians. This was not uttered by the Amalekites. And really, the Israelites are struggling to, stay, to say that our God is Lord over all. It is Jethro. It is the Midianites. Let me read from Peter Enns here. Jethro has had a shift in thinking based on what God has done for Israel. Ironically, a realization that Israel itself is often slow to learn. Although neither the Egyptians nor the Amalekites get it, Jethro the Midianite has learned the lesson of the Exodus. The Lord is greater than all other gods. This is, Peter Enns suggests, the central theological point of this chapter. And it gives us a good hint of why this story should be included in Israel's saga at all. Midian is the one nation that gives a proper response to God's deliverance of his own people. Moses, a son-in-law, shares with his father-in-law, Jethro the Midianite, the work of God, and not only is Jeth Jethro delighted and gives praise to God, but actually gives a declaration that God has been trying to bring forth throughout the entire book, a recognition that he is the Lord of all. And so God uses Moses in the life of his father-in-law and from the mouth of a, of a Midianite priest 
God is declared to be Lord of all. It's just unexpected. It's surprising, it's shocking that we're 18 chapters in and God's declaration that he is Lord of all comes from Jethro. This first section of our story today ends with, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifice to the God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. And so we have some indication here of acts of worship that Jethro is actually joining Moses and Aaron and the elders in, in this ritual, this offering, these sacrifices, this meal that's going to become actually codified and expected of God's people in worship later on as we see in the coming chapters. Let me quote from Jen Wilkin to kind of sum up this first half of our passage for today. She says, don't miss the significance of what is going on here. Jethro is not an Israelite. He is an outsider. But when he hears the stories of Israel's deliverance, he confesses that God is the one true God. Israel is here performing the role that the Lord ordained for her. She is being a light to the nations. So in the previous chapter, we saw the outsider reject, that's the Amalekites, right? right uh, reject and attack the people of God. But lest we believe that all outsiders are waiting to attack and reject us, now we see that Jethro, the priest of Midian, was ready to repent when he was told the story of God's provision. Going to come back and apply that a little bit later on. But let's jump into part two, kind of the second half. So in this first half, we saw Moses impact Jethro's life. Now we're going to see God use Jethro in the life of Moses. It says the next day, you know, just because family comes to town doesn't mean you get work off, right? You know that in the summer. Uh, the next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw that all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to, to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. So just get the, the setting here. Moses is kind of this arbitrator. He's been set up in the first part of the book of Exodus as a representative, as, as speaking as to God face to face, that there's no one that God has a relationship with like Moses. And, and that has carried forth, and now we see that to a detrimental end here. That Moses is standing before the nation of Israel, God's people being the lone arbiter. Why is that problematic? Because estimates put this group of people somewhere between a half to one million. 500,000 people to one million people. So just think about kind of Minneapolis, St. Paul, and some additional suburbs, right? Just this, like you're the only guy. You're the only one that's gonna stand as judge. My mom worked at the city of Shoreview for 25 plus years. And it was one of the first people, if you called the city of Shoreview, that, that you'd reach her. And she would come home at night and share the, the complaints of the Shoreview residents with us as a family. Friends, it's breathtaking what, what people have time to complain and grumble about. 
I can remember very distinctly one of the stories was, yeah, Mom, how I was, you know, work, or, or I could just maybe see that she was just like not in a good, happy place when she got home. What happened at work? And there was a, a guy who called and complained and said, your plows left more snow in my yard than my neighbor's. <laughs> and I'd like, I'd like somebody to come out and fix that. Like, like come on, what? <laughs> and so, to some degree, Moses is taking all of the cases, like significant cases, but all the way down to like two people as they're wandering in the wilderness and in the desert, two people coming to him and being like, my sand property line was four feet over yesterday. And he moved, my neighbor moved that piece of bamboo four feet closer to my tent and now I've lost some of my sand property. Like that's, that's what Moses had to like go through these ridiculous disputes and everything in between. About this, Alexander Desmond speaks to the realities of everyday life. It is evident that although the Israelites have been redeemed from slavery, right, delivered out of Egypt, they have not been so transformed that their lives are now perfect. As their prior grumbling indicates, the potential for disputes with others is plainly present. While issues of tension within the community need to be addressed, implicit in this chapter is the idea that divine redemption has as its goal the creation of a just society. How are we going to answer this problem? How are we going to get all of these 500,000 to a million people to live in peace and harmony? Let's keep going. Moses' father-in-law replied to his idiot son-in-law, sorry, Israelite son-in-law, what you are doing... They like front, third row, like that one. That was good, okay? <laughs> what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. Now, a couple things about this. We, we read just previously this kind of idea of from morning till evening he sat and he was the judge. And then here it says, and it's not good. So we have some kind of reverberations of the Genesis account. Like from morning till evening. Morning till evening in Genesis 1 and it's good and it's good and it's good. It's very good. But here we have another example of when things get skewed, when God isn't reigning, when we don't understand wisdom from folly, right here, it's from morning till evening, morning till evening, again and again, he's judging the people's cases, and it's not good. And so Jethro brings forth this idea of you cannot do it alone. You need help. You need people around you. You need community. And you going about this alone is ineffective, inefficient. You're going to wear yourself out, and you're not actually going to help all the people. And yet he says, do your role, but get help in these other cases. Look at what it says in verse 21. Select capable 
men and women from all the people, men and women who fear God, trustworthy men and women, and men being in, incorporating both men and women who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, or the absurd cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all the people will go home satisfied. And so this is Jethro speaking into Moses' life. And, and that I, 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 glossed, uh, I, I blasted through it here on the previous uh, slide here. It says, I will give you some advice and may God be with you. Or test this with God. See if this might prove wise and helpful and beneficial. See if God would affirm what I'm giving you as wisdom. And select capable, reliable, trustworthy, not out for dishonest gain, to judge, to help in this. It says, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men and women from all of Israel and made them leaders of the people. Officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, they served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Why, why this? Why here? Why, why put this before getting to Mount Sinai and the law? Well, there's more laws to come. This seems like an appropriate precursor and a setup for what's gonna happen in Exodus 20 and beyond. There are gonna be more laws introduced, and, that, and, and thus, a greater likelihood for dispute and a need for capable, reliable, trustworthy people to stand in place and administer justice, administer care. So that's our passage. Now, as with throughout this series, we've been trying to tie it to the gospel. Look ahead. What are some things that originate or are prominent in the book of Exodus that are carried forth? And I just want to highlight one other passage from Matthew's gospel that I think ties in nicely with what's happening here in chapter 18, because I think what we have here in chapter 18 is God's work being recounted in front of Jethro and therefore the Midianites, and them responding in faith. And then you have this idea of Jethro bringing forth wisdom about what would bring forth justice within God's people, and I think both are showcased in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, I'll, I'll highlight what, what I want you to hear as I go, but let me just read in Matthew 12, chapter 9. Sorry, I don't have it on the screen. It says, Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they, the people, the Pharisees, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They asked him this so they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Which one of you? The answer is all of you will do that. If your sheep falls into a pit, you're gonna grab it out. Of how much more value is a person than a sheep, Jesus says. So it is lawful, here it is, to do good on the Sabbath. 
Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against them how to destroy him. They're trying to establish in that context with Jesus. We have this person with a withered hand, but it's on the Sabbath. And if you heal, that's a work on the Sabbath. So you're violating the Sabbath. And Jesus says, tell me what is good. Are you able to discern it? Moses struggled to discern it in our chapter in the book of Exodus. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, are struggling to just identify what is good. And Jesus says, you deem it's good to pull your sheep out of a pit. What about this person? Your sheep more valuable than this person? No. Do good as you are able to deem what is good. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make this known. This was, a, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Indicating, seeming to indicate this coming one, this Jesus. It says, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations, justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the nations will hope. And so this Jesus is lifted up and is able to describe what is good and he is described as the one who's able to bring forth justice, not just for Israel, but for the nations. As it was done for the Midianites, so now we have in mind not just the Midianites, just, not just the Israelites, not just the Egyptians, all the nations of the world. What is described in part in the book of Exodus is true, not just because the Israelites are favored. No way. It's not just about them is that they might be a light to the nations. That God's justice might not just be poured out on them, but be poured out upon all. Jesus being the focal point of that justice and that goodness and that mercy. Jesus came to proclaim God's justice, God's holiness, God's truthfulness, and also his mercy and his love and his grace. And that's why we speak at hope so highly of the cross because at the cross of Jesus, his mercy and his truth collide. His love and his justice collide at the cross. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us here and now? I have some questions that I wanna have you consider and as you do so, whether that means Today, as we're taking communion, whether that means later as you're meeting and having lunch with some hope people, whether that means later this week in your small groups, as you're sitting around with roommates and family and friends, maybe even in your offices, I want to challenge you with some of the truths of Exodus 18 and Matthew chapter 12 here. One question. Are we consistently recounting everything the Lord has done, including hardships, and specifically to those we deem outsiders. Now how we define outsiders is probably gonna be different for every person in the room. But somebody that you feel like is far off from God would have no interest in the things of God. They're hostile to you, to your message. 
And I'm asking the question, are we consistently recounting everything the Lord has done, including hardships, as Moses did to Jethro? There were all sorts of reasons why he could have made excuse not to share, right? Well, this is my father-in-law. I haven't seen my wife and kids. I'll dedicate all the time to them. He's a priest of Midian. What's he gonna care about what's happening with Israel? All sorts of reasons, all sorts of excuses not to share. But I'm asking, will we consistently, will we continue to share what God is doing? Now, talk to many people. Some people are benefited by just that question and you wanna ponder that. Others would love to just hear, like, give me more examples. And so these are just, in order to brainstorm, generate ways of thinking about this. When you share a story, okay, Attribute one aspect of that story to God being at work. Just, just share one aspect of how God was at work in that story. For example, I had the opportunity to go golfing this past week, St. Croix National, with my boss, um, with Pastor Drew, and with uh, Jordan Anderson. As I'm recounting that, it's very easy for me to say, yeah, it was an amazing day, great weather, golf was subpar, uh, right? I can share that. Or I can say, you know, there's just something about being out in the beauty of God's creation. Now, in the first part I share, it's beautiful, but it ends with creation. And if we can bring it to the next level, like, man, God's creation, then, then it brings in God as creator, and so as you share your stories, we might be hesitant. If we're around Christian brothers and sisters, maybe we're just apt to share how God's present. But as we go into other environments, maybe we leave that aspect out. I'm just saying, just share it. Reveal the fact that you have a God filter. A worldview where God is central. Another example might be, maybe, share hardship. Don't gloss over it. We all know Christians who they're just happy all the time, right? Like, they're never down. Maybe you're that person. Sorry if you're that person, right? But it's just like, it's okay to, to share hardship. Some people in our lives would actually benefit from you sharing a hardship. Now, some of you share all the hardships of all the hardships. You don't need to be that, that Christian, but, but it's okay to share, like there's struggle. Some people will benefit from hearing that. Share how you hope God will help you. Like, maybe what you're praying for. Like God hasn't come through in this way yet, but you hope he does. And so just that you can show to somebody that you might deem an outsider, like that you still have longings, that your life isn't perfect, that can be a really helpful testimony. And don't be afraid to share these things in the company of someone you deem outsider. I don't know who the outsiders of your life, I don't know if that's somebody at work, family member, a roommate, but do you manufacture language that kind of works God out of the picture as you talk to that person? It just, it's okay to reveal the fact that you have a worldview that includes God. Another question. As God gives opportunity, will we show ourselves capable and trustworthy in upholding justice? It's true here in Matthew 12, right? It says, I will put my spirit upon Christ and, I, and he will proclaim justice 
to the nations. So this is, this is the work of God, to proclaim justice to the nations. It says, until we will do this until he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the nations will hope. Okay, so this is something that God is doing, and if we are image bearers of God, that we do in part, not in whole, not like he does, but we do our little part. And many of us will not, most of us will not have 500,000 to a million people that we're gonna be arbitrator for. We're not gonna be the judge over a million people. Some of you think you are online, but you're not. You have, <laughs> you, you have authority over 10. You have over, authority over 50, right? But I love that scripture includes that. Because some of you might have a platform of thousands, some hundreds, some 50, some 10, some two. And yet you get to exhibit and bring forth justice, just decision-making, that you can show yourself to be a capable and trustworthy person. I would love if in kind of the communal conversation of the Twin Cities, as people that are the, the outsiders, however you deem them, okay, and as they were coming through a, a crisis, a loss of a loved one, a business decision that they need to make, that they would say, okay, who are the trusted voices in my life that I could go to? And they would think of the people of Hope Community Church every time. Every time that we would be trusted voices because, because we're capable, we've shown ourselves trusted, we're not about out for financial gain, we're not in it for ourselves, but we're there willing to help. A couple ways that you might consider doing this. Ensure all parties in a dispute are treated in an equitable fashion. How? By listening, by asking questions of those in or overseeing the dispute. Maybe you are overseeing the dispute. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're just kind of in there kind of helping conflict coaching by exposing inequalities of treatment. I put that listening part because don't dismiss the importance of listening and hearing from others. Even in the midst of disputes and injustice, many people recognize that they might not get justice. And if they can't get justice, one step short of that is feeling heard. Don't undervalue the difference you might make in somebody's life out there in your offices, with roommates, family members, by hearing them. And yes, if God would give you place to bring forth some measure of equity and just do it, avail yourself of that opportunity. Secondly, as God gives opportunity, appoint individuals based on character and not based on longevity or title or pressure. Find trustworthy, capable, honest, not out for themselves, not out for financial gain. Just a couple examples. I'm not exhausting here, just trying to give some ideas for those that are benefited by some public pulpit brainstorming. Now, we got a chance to take communion. If you're new to hope or new to taking communion, here's... Here's what it symbolizes. It, it's a piece of bread. But Jesus, before he died and went to the cross and was raised again, he 
had a final supper with his followers and he said, after I die, you're gonna have the opportunity to gather together and have a ceremonial meal. You're gonna have a, a chance to, to worship me and do so by taking bread. It will be symbolic of my body being broken for you. As you break the bread or squishy tear off the bread here in our sake, we don't have the crispy bread here. But as you do that, do this in remembrance of me. It is my body given for you. And as you take the cup, it is symbolic of my blood being shed for you. Do this, take this in remembrance of what I have done. And I would add the words of our passage that we do this to remember his justice because God did not let sin go unpunished. But that punishment doesn't fall to you as you trust in Christ. It falls upon him. It's his body being broken, not yours as we trust in him. It's not your blood being shed, it's his. And so the only requirement of taking these elements is that you have trusted in the Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter your background, your denomination, longevity in the church or not. You have the opportunity to, to take communion. We kind of come down the center aisle and peel off to the sides. There's a couple in the, the back, up and down, and I believe gluten-free to my right, if that's a dietary restriction. At any point during these remaining songs, I want to invite you to come forward and and take community as you've trusted in Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Let's pray together. Father, the words of your scripture say, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The nations will worship the God of Israel because God's righteous acts have been revealed. God, we have seen them in the book of Exodus, your righteous right hand, your acts of deliverance, your power to save. And yet, God, even in this congregation, in this people, in a room this size, I'm sure there are several who have not bowed their knee to you who have not trusted in Christ as Savior and as Lord. And so I pray for them, that as was true with Jethro would become true of them, that they would praise you, that they would declare that there is no God like you. You are Lord over all. For perhaps even more in this room, God, they have bowed the knee to you. They worship and praise you. They see you as Lord over all. And now, God, they are in position to share your story, to bear your image, to execute justice in their spheres. God, help them by your spirit to step into these environments with great courage, God. Because we don't know in our office or our families, with our roommates, whether the response is gonna be of the Amalekites or of the Midianites. Whether there will be war or whether there will be peace. And so allow the people of Hope Community with great courage and trust to step into these environments to bring you honor. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.